When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're featuring another event from our online subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus. It features Anne Applebaum, writer for The Atlantic and author of the new book, Twilight of Democracy. And in this live online event, she spoke to Jonathan Friedland about her personal and political experience over the last number of decades as the center ground has evaporated and politics feels more divided and polarized than ever. It's a really fascinating conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome everyone watching. Um, I'm going to be in conversation with, as you've heard, the historian and political commentator Anne Applebaum. And we are talking about this book, which I heartily recommend, The Twilight of Democracy, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends. And just a word or two about Anne. I'm sure most Eugenian will already know much of her work, including her books Gulag, A History, which won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, books on the Iron, the Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, and famously Red Famine, which was a book about Stalin's war on Ukraine and won several very major prizes. She's a columnist at The Atlantic, which is where you can read her now, as well as being a senior fellow at the Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. And importantly, I think, for the subject we're going to talk about, she divides her time between London, Poland and the United States, and therefore has, an, in a way, a very good reach on three different societies and one of the few people who can write really knowledgeably about American affairs and European affairs. Not many people in that position. I'm, I think I'm right, Anne, that we're talking to you in London, despite the sort of satellite-style link-up between us. Yes, uh, thanks, John. I, think, um, I am in London. I've been spent most of the lockdown in Poland, but this is, my, and this is one of my first trips back, so first trips out, rather. So anyway, n- nice to you, be here virtually, yeah. Very good to be with you too. In fact, you even talk about the the mechanics of lockdown and how the borders closed in Poland in a very kind of Cold War style moment with your son, I think, having to walk across a bridge to get in there just in time. We might get onto that. So let's um, kick off straight away. And as I say, our focus is this book, Twilight of Democracy, with a with which contains a sort of pessimistic and perhaps elegiac thought, even in its title. And you do write in the book that 
sort of democracy there's you know can end anywhere and probably will even in the societies that most of uh, us and people watching this tonight are in and that is a sobering thought but you begin with a very real life event and a very human event and i know you've been asked about this in a few places so we won't force you to labor it but the book begins unusually for a sort of polemical political analytical book with a party and i don't mean a party as in labor party or conservative party literally a party on millennium eve in your home in poland to just tell us a little bit about that and why it is you begin the book with with that so let me set the scene for you the party was on the millennium so december the 31st 1999 it was a new year's eve party and it took place in our polish house which was a house that my husband and I and his family really rebuilt from ruin. It had been completely devastated by the war and by communism, never rebuilt in the subsequent decades. And we had just about finished it by 1999, and it had a roof. It didn't, as I recall, have that much furniture, but it had a roof. Um, And so you could have a party in it. Um, And the guests were, I mean, nobody famous or special, young journalists, young, some younger people in politics, my husband at that time was a deputy foreign minister in a, in a in a Polish government, and there was a you know range of people. Some of our friends came from England. Uh, a couple of them even came from the U.S. Remember, it was the millennium, so people wanted to go somewhere amusing for a party, and so they were willing to travel even to Poland in the you know in the snow. And the and the the the, the point about the party is that it was a moment of great optimism, and it felt to me then like all of us there the Poles, the Americans, the Brits, were all kind of on the same team. And all of us were people who you might have called center-right, you might have called us anti-communists, you might have called us Thatcherites, you might have called us, you know, I don't know, kind of McCain Republicans, some of us. I mean, there were others. It was a range of people, but we all kind of felt like we were on the same page. Poland was going the right direction. It was integrating with Europe and with NATO and with America and we were all rebuilding this, you know, the, the, the mess of the, uh, you know, that had created by the Cold War and, and kind of fixing Europe. And that's what I felt at the time. 20 years later, I reflected again on the party and I thought, actually, a lot of the people who were there at that time are not only people who are no longer part of that vision. I mean, they're people who actively reject it and they're people who I no longer speak to and they no longer speak to me. And this parting of ways, this kind of division among my friends, and really it's a metaphor for a division among a kind of, you know, group of, you know, a, a, you know, among a political grouping, is one that is also taking place in other places. So in the U.S., something similar happened inside the Republican Party. In Britain, something similar happened because of Brexit. There have been these polarizations, these divisions, people who thought they were on the same side suddenly discovering they're not. And I one of the you know I wrote the book partly as a way of explaining this to myself. And one of the things that I did was I went back and I looked for other moments in history when that kind of thing had happened before. And maybe we'll we'll get onto this. I found several of them, and they 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 come up in the book. But but the the party is a setting. You know, the party is a is a it's a group of friends who kind of agree with each other more or less, and who now aren't friends. And the and the reasons are political. And as I said, I think this is something that's happened to a lot of people over the last two decades. And you do something there which is quite daring because you don't just coyly refer to friends, you name them and you then describe how 
no, this named individual now would cross the road rather than talk to you, and you would cross the road rather than talk to her. And you, you know, they, the the names are all in there. John O'Sullivan, the very eminent American journalist and editor, you know, Daniel Hannan, the MEP. You name check the people who you have parted ways with. And I, I, just before we plunge into the meat of the argument, just on a human level, I'm curious, how, what's the fallout of that been? I mean, are there people, have you had angry notes and emails arriving from people? No, actually. I mean, most of the people who I write about, I mean, particularly the polls, but I think it applies to the others as well, live in an alternative media universe to me anyway. And what I write doesn't affect them because they, you know, they're they're moved by and interested in other things. So I've had surprisingly, I mean, there was one, I mean, we'll leave it, we won't get into it. There was one review I had that I thought was probably inspired by somebody who was, who didn't like the book, but, but who's named in the book. But you know, I mean, that's that was what I expected. So so I wasn't that bothered. But as I said, most of the most of the people who I'm writing about are proud of their current political positions and, you know, aren't hiding them and are happy to be identified as, you know, radical right or as 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 Trumpists or or as radical Brexiteers or whatever it is that, that I've described them as. So so I don't think they are, I don't see why they should be offended to be so described in my book. Yeah, and for some of them, I think in Hungary and Poland, they would wear the disapproval of Anne Applebaum as a badge of pride, for given given where they are. Absolutely. I mean, so so no, I, I have not had, I have not had any reaction actually at all. I mean, maybe it will come as the book is translated into Polish and so on, but so far not. Yes, you'd want to brace yourself for that moment, I would have thought, um, given what's in the book. So you mentioned there that you've looked back at previous parts in history. And one of the things you mentioned is the Dreyfus affair, for example, in France, and how that split friends and families down the middle. But you do use this term from French, which I think is very interesting to describe a particular kind of echelon of people of influence, maybe influence more than power in some cases, the word clerk, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but I want to hear how you use that term, what you mean by it, because I think it does capture the kind of grouping the class of people we're discussing and and why they're important so this is the, the i got the term from a book by julian bender called which is often translated into english as the treason of the intellectuals um, and in french it's la trahison des clercs and he uses this word clerk and he uses it um disparagingly to mean intellectuals who have become politicized or who have taken sides and who are no longer describing reality as it is and no longer seeking the truth or seeking higher things or, or um, you know, with their, you, you know, with their writing and their study, but who are seeking to justify political movements. And he was writing this book at a time when there was, you know, the rise of both the far right and the far left in Europe were very visible. And um, although interestingly, he later became affiliated with the with the with the far left himself. But at the time, he was he 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 spoke about these two groups of people who who had kind of you know a, you know abandoned what he thought of as the the real task of intellectuals, which is to tell the truth, and were instead working on behalf of of political causes. And famously, and the reason the book I think lasted, and the reason why it you know con- continues to echo, is that he predicts. That this, you know, that these these two new political movements will eventually clash and lead, he says, to the deaths of millions. And since that is exactly what happened, it has to be understood as a as as a kind of prediction. But but it's just I, I you know I don't belabor the point, but I use that metaphor 
in the book as a, as a way of describing what I'm talking about. And I think what, what what it captures is a class of people who are journalists and intellectuals who previously, 20 years ago, may have been liberal conservatives in favour of the rule of law and democracy and, uh, you know, 10 years on from the end of communism, happy to see liberalisation, who now, 20 years on, are propagandists and disseminators of lies for whether it's Viktor Orban in Hungary, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, Donald Trump in America, or Brexit in this country, as you frame it. And they have a sort of culturally enabling role. They sort of sweep up after the the Orbans or the Trumps and come up with either justifications for the for the lies or even attacks on those people who are criticising the lies. It's a particular kind of facilitating role, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, I think I, it's a bit more. I mean, it's not the people who come after; it's the people who create it. You know, if you, uh, you know, these are people who come to power using language and using, you know, very often with very polarizing ideas, seeking to divide society, to create culture wars, you know, to to change the nature of the conversation from I don't know, repairing the roads and and fixing making you know and fixing the trains to something else you know to our loss as a nation or making our nation great again or whatever it is and in order to do that you need people who will create the new mythology and create and tell the stories and then sell them and and so the the book is about you know political strategists some cases journalists some cases writers or speech writers one of the characters is hungarian she runs a she runs a museum of the history of communism i mean so, so it's all kinds of roles that people have, and in those roles, they use them to, to pave the way for you know for very different kinds of political parties. So that so that's the, you know, the, it's the class of people. I mean, you know, some people have said, well, why did you write about them, and why didn't you write about the autocrats or the or the or the or the illiberal leaders themselves? And this, you know, the obvious reason is that because these are the people I know. Um, I know them because I'm a journalist, because they were some of them are my friends or my acquaintances, you know, just as often. Um, and I saw them change. And so, the, you know, I realized, you know, recently that I'd lived through this very important historical intellectual change. And this book was a way of trying to write about it. And so I wrote about it the only way I could. It's a it's a very subjective book. I should say it's not an objective history like previous histories I've written. And the only way I could do it would be to write about it from my point of view, talking about people I know. Yeah, I think you don't hide that at all. And it's in the title, The Parting of Friends. It's very clearly sort of anchored in your own experience. I mean, just to be very parochial for a second about the British bit of this, I mean, because the Brexit chapter, I think people will find fascinating. You talk there about some of your former colleagues on The Spectator, uh, you know, someone like Simon Heffer, for example. He would be an example, would he not, of preparing the ground for the big shift. So making the arguments about Europe bringing ruin, the European Union bringing ruin and disaster, robbing Britain and particularly England of something essential. Yes. So Simon, by the way, I don't think of as a cleric. I mean, he was never working for a political party in in exactly that way. But yes, I mean, Simon, I think genuinely is somebody who despaired of modern England, who felt it was going the wrong way and who hated the European Union you know, for, for very deep reasons, because he thought it was damaging, you know, the country that he loves. And this despair, you know, this this feeling that it was all over, it was all finished, um, which, by the way, there, you know, I also write a little bit about Roger Scruton, who had a very similar 
you know, very similar, wrote about it in a different way and was a different kind of figure, but had a very similar sense of despair. You know, very often this sense, this kind of despair does pave the way for radicalism because if everything is terrible, you know, and if, you know, we're, you know, our civilization is coming to an end, which is what Roger wrote about England, then that means that you become open to very radical kinds of change and maybe very deep kinds of change. You know, uh, you know, if, if it can't be fixed, you know, then then you might as well destroy it. And the rem- the villain in for, for both actually was Brussels and the European Union that they felt had been laying waste. I wonder if a, a previous spectator colleague of yours, namely Boris Johnson, should also belong in that category. And you talk about this in the book because of this purest spell he had as the correspondent of the Telegraph in Brussels, spinning these confections about you know the latest bureaucratic excess regulatory excess that had come from the european commission which you quote him saying as if it was just a great game that he was lobbing rocks over the fence and listening for the sound of the greenhouse shattering on the other side of the fence and it was great fun and gave him a great sense of power would he count in that same sort of category of people who prepare the ground for a big even revolutionary shift even several years later Yes, although I don't think he had the same kinds of motivations. Um, I, you know, I think Boris, I mean, we, we've all overanalyzed Boris Johnson, but I think his his motivation were much more to do with personal power. So there is no question that he he created, he was one of the people who created a huge web of myths about Brussels and what it was doing and everything from the non-existent bendy bananas problem to, I mean, you know, one one issue after the next he was part of, you know, creating. But I, you know, I think his motivations were different. I think he was interested in using that, you know, first to get a leg up in journalism and then later on to win power. I mean, he saw how popular this kind, these kinds of stories were, you know, and in some ways they were maybe falling on fertile ground. I mean, once you have people who are despairing of the state of the country, Europe was offered up as an explanation or one of the reasons why everything is going so badly and that and it and it caught fire i think because there was something real underneath it i mean the, the, i've sensed just now even now in how you're speaking but also in the book that you have more respect for people who are in, in that kind of roger scruton cultural despair camp and you know belief sincerely held that the country is going to hell and therefore you have to do even quite extreme things to save it than the other category of of people who you do spend a lot of time on who are motivated by personal gain. And you give us, for example, the one of two brothers in Poland, and while his brother becomes the editor of a esteemed liberal newspaper, he is constantly rejected and thwarted until eventually he f- finds himself running state television. He's a sort of hack propagandist, and you get the sense from what you're saying there that there's no grander motive there than personal advancement and that actually that applies to quite a lot of the people in this clerk class who are making and wreaking havoc across Europe and in the United States quite a lot of them are doing it as a career move yes yeah, so, so you're we're talking about the Korski brothers a very famous pair in Poland one of them is as you say is the head of a liberal newspaper and the other runs state television and to be clear state television in Poland I, 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 I'm not even sure how to explain it to the British. I mean, try to imagine the BBC has been taken over, I don't know, by the most extreme left website or the extreme far, far right website and is literally putting out 
you know, false stories and running smear campaigns against particular people. During the most recent presidential campaign in Poland, state television was obsessively doing programs about what it called LGBT ideology. And uh, um, the, the, the president of the country was also using this phrase and, and, and how LGBT ideology is coming to get you and your family and, and, and undermine you. Um, it ran anti-Semitic programming as well about Jews from abroad who are maybe coming to take your property away. I mean, this is a, this is a kind of extreme uh, you know, pro- political propaganda of a kind that I think most Europeans don't even realize still exists. And so the question is, what motivates the person who runs it, given that he and his brother come from the same family? They were both solidarity, anti-communist activists as teenagers. They come from a very patriotic family. They, they come from exactly the same social milieu um, and what motivates him. And again, in, in none of these stories do I have the full explanation. I mean, I can't look into somebody's heart or head. But in the case of Jacek Korski, I did spend a lot of time reporting on him. In fact, and talking to a lot of people who know him and over and over again, they said, look, he's somebody who was disappointed. You know, he didn't get what he want. He thought he should be prime minister. He was convinced that he was a political genius, yet somehow none of his projects worked out. And by the time he was in his, you know, early 50s and he was offered this job, he took it and he's been using it to get back and take revenge against all the people who who, who he thinks spurned him, spurned him all along. I mean, in a way, it's also a story about disappointment. So rather than disappointment with the country, which there is some of that, and you know, you get a little bit of that on the Polish right too. It's more personal disappointment. I, you know, following the 30 years of political transition in Poland, I didn't get what I wanted to have, and I'm not as important as I thought I should be. Um, and in his specific case, I think you can make an argument that that's a lot of what this is about. I mean, it's you know, there's a very deep cynicism and a very, you know, profound disregard for, you know, the standards of truth or journalism that goes into creating propaganda like the kind you now have on public television in Poland. And what's interesting is that kind of cynicism and personally motivated desire for advancement could be free floating and attach itself onto any ideology. It could serve left or right propagandistically if that was where the, you know, the bread was buttered. And yet what run, what runs through the book that makes it more than just a story about personal failures and advancements is this notion that there is a battle between, and it would have divided the people at your party in 1999, what what I think we could call a kind of civic nationalism, a, a national identity that is about the rule of law and democracy and uh, you know good government on the one hand, versus, and you use this very stark phrase, the emotional cult of ancestry and place that what tends to unite the other side in in whether it's Poland or Trump's America or Brexit Britain or Hungary, etc., is a kind of, you know, I, I hesitate to use this because I don't want to get dragged into the 1930s, but a sort of blood and soil nationalism, that it's a nationalism of place and and often blood in the sense of, you know, who's allowed to belong and who isn't. And so, that, 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 uh, yes, there's the personal stuff and there's also the the feeling of cultural despair but actually what you're sort of revealing to us is it not is a divide even within the right over what constitutes a nation and which kind of nationalism is the nationalism the correctly of the right so yeah i mean this this is a very i you know i i I try to show the problem in the book from different angles without 
without, you know, I mean, it's a, it's one of the issues that underlies the current division. I, you know, it was, it's one, it's one of the things that underlay the Dreyfus case in the, in the 19th century, which I write about. It's one of the things that underlay the split inside the Tory party over Brexit, which kind of Tory were you? It's one of the things that underlie the split in the Republican Party in the United States. You know, there was a way in which during the Cold War, you know, we, a lot of the right was, I mean, in all of our countries, in all these countries that I'm writing about, the right was a kind of coalition, you know, so there were different people who were part of it for different reasons. Just like there were different people who were anti-communist for different reasons. So some of them were anti-communist because they were, um, you know, they they disliked, you know, they were worried about, you know, Russian encroachment on Europe, and they were worried about nuclear weapons, and some of them were anti-communist because they, you know, because they were in favor of human rights and democracy, and some of them were anti-communist because they were Christians, right? And after the Cold War, those things that held them together split up, and they discovered that they had quite views about a lot of other things. I mean, the similar kind of thing, I think, happened to the center-right, too. I mean, in a way, Mrs. Thatcher was able to combine those two kinds of center rightness. Now I'm wondering if that's if that's maybe if that's the correct noun, but she was on the one hand a kind of English nationalist. I mean, in her way of, you know, in her way of being, in her the kind of language she used and the way she behaved and dressed and so on. At the same time, she saw herself as being part of this big coalition, you know, with America and with others, and she used language about democracy and human rights that I I think she believed in. And so it, in a way if you were a Thatcherite, you could be both you know, you could, you could somehow under that umbrella, you could, you, you know, those two groups of people coexisted. And I think once she was gone, they began to go in other directions. I mean, in a way, 9-11 probably held the right together, both in America and Britain, longer than it would have done otherwise. But certainly as 9-11, you know, as people began to perceive the you know, the war in Iraq is a failure, those groups began to really quite dramatically separate. And and you offer another date, which I think is really significant, partly because it does absolutely coincide with the fall of Thatcher, and that is the end of the Cold War. And you make what I thought was a tremendously uh, striking point, that for the British Conservative Party, there was a way to be kind of internationalist and still very... Uh, you know, Britain first, all at the same time, which was by being part of, or patriotically British, which was to be part of this big international project in concert with the Americans, our buddies, the Americans, fighting communism. And therefore, you could look beyond these shores because Britain had a starring role and there was a kind of sense of purpose and a role big enough for the country. And you write that after the end of the Cold War, a lot of these Brits are sort of a particular kind are sitting around thinking, well, what do we do now that's big enough for our status in the world? And when they don't have that, they then get in because the Cold War's over and they're no longer really needed at America's side. Suddenly they get into thinking, well, you know, maybe we are no longer as big a player as we were. And that's where the narrative of decline begins to sort of eat away at the conservative soul. Yes, I think there was also a lot of dissatisfaction with the 1990s. You know, we won the Cold War and then what? You know, John Major's going to repair some roads. He's going to do a few little treaties. Why is that interesting? The Cones Hotline. Do you remember that? Exactly. The Cones Hotline. And people began to want some bigger cause. And they began to say, what, you know, what's the next big cultural revolution? And for a lot of people on the right in Britain, the experience of winning the Cold War was really important. Because if you remember, you know, they had the feeling, you know, people laughed at us and people on the left said we were wrong and we were crazy. Look, we won and we were right by 
defying the, you know, the bien pensant, you know, guardian reading intellectuals. And we were right. And, and there was this feeling that what are we going to do next? What's our next big task? And there was a long, long period of feeling that we haven't quite found our role. What are we supposed to do? And I think Brexit came along and offered that, you know, here's the next revolution that we can be part of. Here's how we can, you know, once again, you know, give England a bigger say in the world. Uh, one, well, there's one last distinction, which again, I think is so interesting. And then I, w- I want to just ask a couple of sort of challenges to the to the book. This distinction between two forms of nostalgia, about restorative nostalgia and reflective nostalgia. Nostalgia is obviously a huge part of all these movements. So, you know, in the grammar of make America great again, meaning it was once, and in Britain, take back control. We used to have it. There's in both movements, but absolutely in the Vox movement in Spain and in Hungary and Poland, there's this, that nostalgia is obviously a thread that runs through here. What what did just to talk, people are watching through that distinction of two types of nostalgia? So this is a, this is something I, it's not my original idea. It comes from a writer called Svetlana Boim, who wrote a book called The Future of Nostalgia. And she talks about, you know, this idea that you can you can have a form of nostalgia, which is, you know, liking old churches and, you know, looking through old photo albums and liking to read history. And this is actually kind of nostalgia that I'm familiar with. You know, I also like old places and old, you know, ancient sites and so on. And then there's a second kind of nostalgia, which is this idea that not only do we miss that piece of the past, we want it back and we can rebuild it and we can have the past back as it was and we can rebuild it as it is now. And really most nationalist projects, if you look back over time, are that. You know, they are an argument that the nation has been weakened and the nation needs to be rebuilt again and we need to bring back older, better days, a time when we had more heroic leaders and we were grander and more glorious and we need to bring back those old values and rebuild them here now. And, and that often means clearing out, you know, this unnecessary stuff that's accumulated in the meantime, like whatever, whether it's immigrants or rights for people who, who, who didn't have rights in the past, or whether it's bringing back a certain way of life that, it, that has been lost. And these can be very violent and very um, aggressive, you know, uh, uh, aggressive movements. And the, the return of this restorative nostalgia, which is so intimately connected to this kind of ethnic nationalism, blood and soil nationalism, is one of the most you know, remarkable phenomenon of the past decade. I mean, and you can see it across you know, multiple countries happening right now. I mean, well, maybe, maybe we, can, we can speak about this. I mean, in the book, I say that it, you know, there is, a, there is a, a degree to which it's a, it's a reaction to the speed of change and this, you know, the cacophony that now surrounds us and the, the change in, the, in, the, in the, the fact that we're all bombarded with images and messaging all the time. People are looking for something more stable, something familiar, something from the past, you know, something that they remember. And that's this restorative nostalgia, which can also be called nationalism, is you can, see, you can understand absolutely what the deep appeal is. Does that mean that people... Uh, like you and you know the other guests back at that party in 99 who thought that you know the cold war was 10 years behind you now people are going to rally even emotionally for the cause of you know european union membership and liberal democratic norms a free press an independent judiciary being part of the eu were you massively wrong there and underestimating the 
the emotions of the of the people of, uh, who were going to make up the electorates of these new post-communist countries. Did you just get, did, you know, did, was there a huge miscalculation in thinking that the old nationalism, the sort of soil ethnic nationalism, had passed? Was it almost just a misreading of human nature somehow? The premise of your question is one that I disagree with, namely that this is some kind of problem of Eastern Europeans. Oh no, I was I, w- I was going to say that it's it's across the world, but we just because your party was there, but you know that's where I, I don't but... I I don't think it's a problem. That's I mean, in Poland and Hungary, we have had the bad luck of having these parties win elections and therefore begin dismantling institutions. But these kinds of parties, these you know nativist parties, exist everywhere. Um, Absolutely, no, no. I I was just going with that because that's where your book begins. But no, did we all under misunder you know underestimate the appeal in Britain of a, a kind of flag of St George nationalism in America of America firstism? You know, was there is a kind of global mistake by you know educated bien pensant thinkers who who thought that the cerebral set of principles would get the pulses racing and just didn't realise that actually the old stuff that we all thought was in the left behind in 1945 still stirred people i suppose we yet yeah, no i mean yes we we missed you know i i misguessed you know m- you know what the reaction would be and what the threats would be i saw you know we thought islamic fundamentalism you know radical jihadism was going to be the threat you know at one point you know i i i knew i i thought at one point that it would, it would russia was going to be the most important threat but that the threat would come from within our societies and from this a return to this earlier form of 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 nationalism yes i probably i did miss that i should have seen it earlier but um but it seemed so thoroughly defeated in 1989 yeah no i, I wasn't in a way particularly you know latching this onto you i think this is a you know like i'm just thinking about tony blair and his attitude to opening up immigration to so-called you know trans new accession countries he underestimated how people might react to that Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Here's the other thing I wanted to ask you about, about the book, which is you pay a lot of attention to, as you said, the people you know. You know, you didn't, some people have said, why didn't you do the leaders, do, you know, Orban, instead you do the people who ran the museum for Orban, you know. The question I had in my mind was not so much them, actually, it was sort of bottom up, which is why this attention on the manipulators rather than on the manipulatees? You know, surely what matters more is not that, these journalists and writers and historians and intellectuals were ready to saddle up and prepare the ground for these uh, various authoritarian leaders, but rather that these authoritarian leaders had so much appeal and that authoritarianism, you know, the museum and the TV networks and everything else would have a ready audience for this. Should that not have been 
Or is that is that not really more worthy of our attention than these very compromised individuals who, for personal gain, do that? I mean, as I said, this is a subjective book. You know, I wrote it from my point of view. I'm a I'm a character in the story. You know, I I have you know, I, and I lay all the biases and so on on the line. You know, and so I wrote about the piece of the story that I know and understand the best. There are volumes and volumes of, you know, political science right now being written about why people vote for Donald Trump or why people support Viktor Orban. And and God bless them. You know, I'm, I'm, I will read them all. Um, and, it, and, and it's very interesting and important. And I sometimes that's a topic that I've approached in some of my other writing and some of my in some of my journalism. But in this particular book, as I said, I focused on people that I know and a world that I understand because I'm in it, you know. And so that was the that was the reason for that. That doesn't mean that, you know, why voters vote the way they do isn't an important story or why Donald Trump has the psychology he has isn't also an important story, although I don't think I can read any more about that. But but, you know, but but there but, you know, it's not that I'm saying this is more important or less. You know, it's just that this is the piece of it that I know and I'm familiar with. Yeah, I mean, I would make an even more um, sort of full-throated defense because I think what happens is the effect of focusing on, you know, it illuminates the manipulated if you have a good look at the manipulators, you know. So I think there's nothing, you know, I think it does, it achieves something very worthwhile there. So, um, you know, I, I think that's a, that's that's all okay. I, I wondered if the whole process of writing this has prompted a different kind of reflection in you which is, you know, you absolutely do, you know, you look at, you take on board the uh, sort of counterpart movements on the left, people on the left who ended up enabling kind of various left populists, you have a little look at Corbynism, but mainly these things are on the right. Most of the people who've made this journey were on the centre-right. And there you are now as somebody who, you know, vehemently opposes Brexit, despairs at the drift in America, in Europe, in, in Britain, in elsewhere, and I wondered if whether you think this is just a sort of, a, you know, a few bad apples who've gone this way on the right, or whether now it makes you think, you know what, you should never have been on the right anyway, that these, that this potential was always there, in even when it was so much more genteel and funny and sort of warm on the, in the spectator offices in the 1990s, actually, the notion that those people and the equivalents in Budapest and Warsaw and Washington DC would go to this dark side in when the when the when the music changed you know maybe that was in somehow inherent in right and right of center politics and do you as, as somebody who says in, you always identify with that side of the political aisle especially in the 90s were you in the wrong place all along so no i don't think so and you know i think there is this kind of illiberalism you know, or penchant for authoritarianism is, in, you know, you can also find it on the left. And God knows we may eventually see it on the left. But and, and we have done in the past. You know, I think those kinds of tendencies are inherent in any party. And I think that, the you know, what matters is the choices that are made. I mean, I was thinking recently about George W. Bush. And one of the things that he started out his presidency with was this idea that he was going to completely remake America's relationship with Mexico. The first country he visited, if I remember correctly, was Mexico. He had a close relationship with the then president. He wanted to do immigration reform. And his big idea 
was that the Republican Party should be a much broader party and it should be, you know, it should be the party of Hispanics, of Hispanic Americans. So, you know, and then 9-11 happened and he got distracted and he went a different direction and we had to shut our borders instead of opening them, okay, or instead of running them differently. But that little, you know, but, ha- you know, a different George Bush or a different Bush presidency might have created... Uh, you know, a kind of multicultural Republican Party of a kind that we now think is, is, you know, impossible. But what I'm trying to say is that if you look back 20 years and you look, you can see the seeds of a lot of ideas. You can see that you can see the, the seeds of a very broad based Republican Party. You can see the seeds of a white supremacist Trumpist party. Um, you know, you can see all these tendencies there. And, and frankly, the same is true if you look at the Tory party. I mean, you can, again, it was a coalition and you can see all these tendencies. It was just, it's just a question of which ones won. And so, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sorry that I was an anti-communist. I'm not sorry that I was, I was on the center right in the, in the, in the, in the, at the end of the 1980s and in the 1990s. Um, Absolutely. I, I get the idea that these changes were sort of contingent rather than necessary, or these outcomes were uh, Nothing is inevitable. Nothing no political change is inevitable. Right. But that said, this sort of, if the, if the thing you recoil from in the book is a kind of specific ethnic nationalism, I think it's fair to say that lives on the right more than it does on the left. There are other problems with the left in terms of authoritarianism, but it doesn't, there's no risk you know, even somebody like me who wrote critically about Jeremy Corbyn, I never worried that he was going to drift over into a kind of ethnic nationalism, you know, but there were, there were other problems, which we could talk about another day. But you were in a movement, I would submit, on the right, where there was always the, there was always that danger that ethnic nationalism was in the, was in the DNA of the right. And it was, you know, absolutely, it was never preordained that it would come out, but that was where the risk lay. Sure. And a kind of, and, uh, and, and you could also make the same argument that a kind of, totalitarian thinking was always in the DNA of the left, you know, that you could, by the same token, I could say, well, you were on the left and you, you know, therefore, you know, the left was much more likely to make excuses for Stalinism and for Soviet communism and for all kinds of, you know, you know, vicious political movements all over the world, you know, so, so, and and that was why I wasn't on the left uh, in, in, in the past was, you know, precisely for those reasons. And at the time, it seemed to me that the right didn't have that danger. It wasn't, it wasn't sympathetic to communist totalitarianism. So, you know, ha- had the world gone a different way and had we, you know, if we had a, I don't know, left wing, uh, you know, government in Britain that was, that was heading in that direction, we would all be talking about, couldn't you see it all along and wasn't it there in the left all along? The point is that, you know, these movements are, are, are coalitions and, you know, what matters is, is which one wins. Absolutely right. In, in, in that in that in that context, then a questioner who didn't name themselves but has written in says, "You write a look a lot in the book about the naked self interest of a lot of these clerics. Does this make them easier to bring back to the light than hardcore ideologues and true believers?" And the reason why that question is in this context is because you, as you say, they won, but that doesn't mean the battle's over. And you know, you described yourself at the start as a McCain, you know, McCain Republican, or you said you were in that world of McCain conservatives, etc. Can that side, liberal, you know, pro-European conservatives in this country, you know, come back? And if they can, does it help that, as our questioner says, a lot of the people who have, you know, are on the other side right now were, were driven there by personal advancement and careerism, and therefore it's going to be easier to, as he puts it or she puts it, bring them back to the light than the hardcore true believers? 
So this is really a question about the future of the Republican Party, or I mean, it's 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 a big topic of discussion right now in the U.S., which is what happens to the afterwards to the I mean, if Trump loses, what happens to the people who've been Trumpists and can they be persuaded to, to change their views again? And I think a lot of the answer to that question is going to depend on not just I mean, if Trump loses, which of course he might not, he might win, but also how he loses and if he loses by a little bit and there is a long contested election and it looks like there's still a lot of support for Trumpism in the country, then you will find, I think, the Republican Party next time around being led by, I don't know, Don Jr., you know, by one of the, you know, Mike Pompeo. You'll find it being led by someone uh, of that ilk in the party. And then we will have, you know, in the U.S., you know, a conflict between that kind of nativist party and, you know, and a, and, a, and a democratic coalition that will go on well into the future. I mean, if it's, if he's really soundly defeated and if the Senate is also lost, then and if and if it seems to people that this kind of ideology won't win elections, then, yes, you could, you know, then you're right. The sort of careerists will will begin to recalibrate and might begin to say, well, OK, you know, then then at least I think we have a chance at having a different kind of Republican Party or a kind of different, you know, a different center-right ideology come back in the U.S. So, so really, a lot depends on the on the nature of the election. I, I mean, in a way, I meant e- I, I meant even bigger than just uh, uh, electorally, and even bigger than just in one country. Uh, I, to pick up the phrase you just used, I'm thinking in a way about center-right ideology globally. Can it? How can it once again compete with the emotional appeal of anti-migrant, xenophobic, ethnic nationalism and make a case once again for sort of Christian Democrat, rule of law, supranational institutions, multilateralism? You know, it feels as if right now the devil has all the good tunes and I'm not sure how the kind of conservatism you might represent or, or, or want to speak for comes back i don't just mean in kind of this election or that election how do you once again get people as it were sort of you know beating the drum and raising the flag for your kind of national you know conservatism which isn't about flags and drums so that's a that's a long conversation and in the i don't know in the 19 minutes that we have left i'm not sure we're gonna we're gonna cover all the bases but i have again written about this in in some of my journalism even quite recently i think there are a lot of roads back one is to to think hard about what it is that people feel is missing, to understand that a lot of things have changed and to understand that people are traumatized by the speed of change, to understand that there are some elements of tradition, of, you know, traditional relationships and traditional ways of talking and speaking that people miss and reassure people that they're not, they're not going to have to lose everything as we kind of speed into the future. I think, you know, making, you know, making politics much more about offering people safety and safety nets, not just economic, but kind of cultural. I think that's one of the answers. I mean, I think another answer is to appeal to people's patriotic instincts as opposed to their ethnic nationalist instincts. I mean, remembering that, you know, liberalism itself, you know, was originally was born alongside nationalism. You know, you can actually have democracy unless you have some kind of sense of community and that there is a there is an upside there is patriotism that we feel and that's a you know we want our country to be better we want to support our fellow britons or our fellow americans and you know we want to make our country better and appealing to some of that you know and finding ways to use language that appeals to people i think that's that's a, that's another piece of the answer 
You know, and some of the answer, you know, there's there's sort of a long conversation to be had about both about two things that bother me a lot about the contemporary world. One is the the way the unregulated internet, and by and by regulation, I don't mean censorship. I mean thinking we need to as democracies, we need to think really deeply about what we want the public sphere to look like, and do we want it to be so easy to manipulate it and so easy to spread lies and rumors, and do we want the algorithms to favor you know, hatred and anger and emotion over rational debate. And can we can we step back and take a look at it and, and, and think about it again? And the second one is to do with, in, uh, you know, kleptocracy, dirty money, the amount of money that's, you know, the many billions of dollars that are hidden in tax havens that are part of the explanation for why we don't have, you know, you know why why the state feels underfunded and 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 people feel so insecure. So, I mean, I think there is a you know there are both policy arguments that can be made that that appeal that will appeal broadly and there's a way of speaking to people that i i hope i mean i don't consider i don't know what whether i'm center right or conservative or how exactly even to describe myself anymore but um i do think that there is a there are there are tactics and attitudes that the center hasn't yet used intelligently to win to win people back very, very interesting. On the first of those last two points you made, we did have a question that said, do you think we overanalyzed the 20th century when wondering why democracy is failing and underanalyzed the role of Facebook and Google in transforming politics? I mean, you did already say a bit about that, but do you, do you want to say anything just to, uh, as a coder on to specifically perhaps those two big tech giants? Sure. So there's actually in the book, there's a long section on exactly this and on the way in which, you know, not just social media, but the internet more generally has made... You know, polarization is a phenomenon that goes back, you know, millennia. But but the way it happens so much more quickly now, and the way it's it it can be engineered now on social media, and 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 through other aspects of the internet is is one of the reasons why this is all happening so fast. And I again, the book does devote quite a bit of time to that. Yeah, well, Carolyn in Cumbria has written in saying, "How do centrists pull the U.S., U.K., Poland?" back from the far right. The left is weak in all these countries. I think we you touched on that about how that might be done, reasserting safety net, reasserting a kind of civic patriotic identity. But Carolyn, uh, the same Carolyn, also then says, women are not best served by these authoritarian leaders. Can Anne see a day when women can come together to defeat these men, she asks with an exclamation mark. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, men and women, I think both men and women have the same tendency to admire and like authoritarians. I don't necessarily think that women are more special or more moral or more democratic. It is true that a lot of the anti-authoritarian movements that we've that, that have been recently successful, I mean notably in Belarus, have had very charismatic and impressive female leaders. And it may be that there is a, you know, there's a there's a role for women. But I, you know, I really, you know, I do think it will require both sexes to work together and to think, you know, to, to, to think about how to reconstruct or how to rebuild or how to reform our societies. I, I dislike the idea that there's one sex that's superior to the other. Yeah, sure. Your mention of charisma prompts an interesting question in my mind, which is, does do you know, does one need to fight fire with fire? Is the only way to defeat an Orban or a Trump with a similarly charismatic figure it goes back to my point before about the devil having all the good tunes you know is that the only way to fight these populist authoritarian leaders somehow in their own coin 
So this is a big argument that's going on in, in politics right now. I mean, in the in the U.S., there's even an argument about what's the best way for the Biden campaign or for those who support the Biden campaign to behave. You know, should they reach out across divides? Should they use calming, you know, unifying language, or should they just hammer Trump? You know, which is the and you know which is the right tactic? Um, which you know, or should they do what Trump does, which is you know, start viral memes and and create online hysteria and so on. And, you know, I mean, I think part of the answer will be it depends on the country and it depends on the situation. And but you're right, it may also it may be that in in some places and at some times we need some kind of charismatic alternative, somebody who can be charismatically in favor of working together or integration. And that's not an impossible idea. I mean, we've had we've had such leaders in the past. Liberals always hope that somehow people, the electorates, will suddenly see the value in calm, sober moderation, and they'll all run to a sort of Keir Starmer figure as a relief. But it's it's an open question whether it happens or not, and it's another reason why people. Um, there, there was there was just an election in Poland in which the opposition candidate tried to win doing exactly that. You know, unifying language. We are all together. You know, one nation. It's you know, and it was good. He did very well, but it was forty nine percent good instead of instead of 51% good, and he lost. So, And that's led a lot of people to wonder maybe he should have been tougher. So, and, and I think people will be watching the Biden campaign all over the world for exactly this reason. Listen, in our remaining three or four minutes, uh, let's just ask you about the t- two countries you do know so well, Britain and America. Let, first of all, with Britain, a question came in. Do you think Boris Johnson actually holds any kind of political philosophy, any kind of aim? From the outside, he appears to be being swept along by other forces, for example, Dominic Cummings, and seems bemused and unmotivated. For example, look at the exchange he had with Ed Miliband yesterday. You know the Boris Johnson world as a former spectator writer. What's your answer to the uh, questioner's inquiry? I think Boris Johnson does have some kind of basic, you know, I mean, he's actually said it himself famously in the speech that he's given more than once about the, you know, a kind of the the mayor and the Jaws movie, you know, I, I you know, I'm yeah. just going to do what I, he has a kind of bumptious, every, I should do what I think and we should, and England should just stand up for itself. He has some instincts that I think are real, but I don't think that counts as a governing political philosophy. And in fact, I think his dependence, weird actually now, dependence on Dominic Cummings is partly because he doesn't have a political strategy. He doesn't really have a clear idea about what he wants to do with Brexit. And that's why he's really dependent on other people feeding him with the idea. No, I don't think he has a I don't think he has a goal beyond, as I said, that kind of instinctive. It's ridiculous to say we can't succeed. Of course we can see, you know, we, you know, Dunkirk, you know, I don't know, World War Two. I mean, it, it, he has that's real, I think. But I don't think it's a I don't think it's a, a it, it amounts to a sophisticated understanding of trade agreements. No, I think that sounds right to me. As a parting thought, you've kept your, you know, wisely held back from making any predictions about America, because obviously we don't know, it could go either way. But just before we leave, what's your sort of read of the election, how you think it's going? I'm not going to commit you to an actual outcome, but who's, you know, making the arguments? Do you sense an electorate that's moving from where it was in 2016? Is is coronavirus the big issue or the economy? Just however, just a final take from you on this big election that people all over the world are watching. So the Trump, for Trump to win, the Republican Party has to create a totally false image of the world. 
and convince people that it's true. You know, that the coronavirus was a great success, that the economy is still booming or it was booming. We've had a little hiccup and it's going to be all fine. That the real threat to you is not wildfires or climate change, you know, or or the pandemic. The real threat is left-wing anarchists who are coming to burn your house down, literally. And so the the what we are all watching in fascination is how many people will be taken in by this completely false picture of the world. And because the online world is so compelling and because it's so mesmerizing to all of us, maybe it's going to prove true that the online world is more powerful. And I think that's the that's going to be the that's what that's the thing to watch for in this campaign. Excellent. Thank you so much. And you've told us the, if not the answer to the November 3rd question, you've told us what the question is. And that's a great help. The book, again, is Twilight of Democracy, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends by our guest, Anne Applebaum. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Anne. Thank you to you. Thank you to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. (laughs) 